Hello. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 22nd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. I know you're going to want to hear the weather report first thing because there's a lot to talk about today. This is from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. The main focus of today is on the freezing rain and sleet moving into eastern Iowa. While this will start off rather scattered, a more widespread batch is likely as the morning goes along, with temperatures in the upper 20s to lower 30s. Glazing is expected to occur quickly, creating dangerous travel conditions. For many of us, the main impact, unfortunately, will be freezing rain and ice accumulation. Snow accumulation will be confined to the far northeast corner of Iowa, though freezing rain may mix into these areas as well. It's important to note that places not included in the ice storm warning could still see ice accumulation. At this time, we still expect the worst of the freezing rain to set up in the ice storm warning counties, where some totals could exceed a quarter of an inch. Expect this wintry mix to begin during the morning commute, with impacts intensifying by mid to late morning. Given the nature of freezing rain and icing in general, travel may be difficult and, in some spots, impossible due to freezing rain in the area. Strong winds are also expected, and depending on how much ice accumulates, may result in isolated power outages or tree damage. Even areas that get a light glaze or trace amounts could still see impact from this system. If you can avoid travel today, this is advised. In terms of snowfall amounts, the northern row of counties in eastern Iowa will likely pick up the most, which could be more than four inches in spots. Farther south, snow isn't a big factor locally with this system, with the focus squarely being on the ice potential. As for the wind, gusts of 30 to 40 plus miles per hour are expected during the freezing rain today and on the back side of the low-pressure system on Thursday. Depending on ice accrual, this may lead to sporadic power outages and the potential of isolated tree damage as well. For those that do pick up some snow accumulation, look for blowing and drifting snow, particularly toward Decorah and Wakan. Now back to the front page of The Courier today. We have these stories to read. Taxes and Data Center Stir City Council Arguments, Flirts Film Wins Top Honors, School Book Hearing Gets Testy, and we'll begin reading the story that appears on the top of the page, Therapy Ban Clears First Hurdle, Outlawing Conversion Therapy, was approved 5 to 1. Two more readings are ahead. This story was filed by Maria Cooper, and it begins with a photograph of the pride flag waving on a sunny day. Dateline Waterloo. After more than an hour of public comments, the City Council approved a ban on conversion therapy Monday, but it must pass two more readings to become law. The ordinance, spearheaded by Ward 2 Council Member Jonathan Greider, aims to outlaw the practice of attempting to change someone's sexual or gender identity in Waterloo first discussed in a work session on February 6th. It ultimately passed with a vote of 5-1, to one, with City Council Member Dave Bozen voting against it. However, 
all six council members voted against suspending the rules to waive the second and third readings, allowing chances for future discussion. Nearly 20 residents spoke Monday night, several voicing the opinion that the council was trying to ram it down the citizens of Waterloo's throat in one week. As constituent Michael Bayer said, many said the ban is not in the council's purview and is a state issue. Quote, this is the state's job to determine, resident Todd Obadal said. Quote, this is not for the city council to step in. You don't have the authority to do this. How are you going to enforce this? Unquote. The proposed ordinance states the city would enforce a ban on conversion therapy through the city attorney's office. The city attorney would mail any medical or mental health professional who is in violation a written notice to immediately cease and desist. If the health professional doesn't immediately comply, the violation would become a municipal infraction pursuant to city code. City attorney Martin Peterson did not speak Monday night, but previously said at a work session he had concerns the ordinance would be subject to preemption if it is adopted. A higher level of government could forbid the city to regulate the issue. At that same work session, Grider referenced the other two Iowa government entities that banned conversion therapy, Lind County and the city of Davenport. He noted Lind County, which adopted a similar framework to Waterloo's proposed ordinance, has not faced any pushback. Davenport issued a ban in its human rights ordinances. Supporters like Sam Blatt applauded the proposed ban. Quote, there's so many bills in the state house that are anti-LGBTQ, and as someone who is a part of the community, we're under attack, Blatt said. One bill Blatt is referring to is Senate Study Bill 1145, which would require school districts to tell parents if they believe a student is transgender. It also requires districts to publicly share their curriculum and course materials. Other residents believe the city council was infringing on parents' rights. Quote, it's a parent's right to choose care for their child in whatever manner they see fit, Don Henry said. Quote, when that doesn't happen, we're looking at communism, socialism, and everything else, unquote. She also made reference to Pink Floyd's song, Another Brick in the Wall, by telling Grider, quote, teacher, leave them kids alone, unquote. Grider is a high school history teacher. Resident and parent Teresa Culpepper said she spoke to children about the proposed ordinance and said the response was the kids want to be protected because, quote, not all the time do adults know what they need, unquote. While she doesn't know if conversion therapy is being used in Waterloo, Culpepper said, quote, there is nothing to prevent it from occurring, unquote. Ted Letterman, a retired doctor of internal medicine, said in 40 years of practice, he has never heard of anyone using conversion therapy in Waterloo. Whether conversion therapy occurs in the Cedar Valley was left unanswered, but Grider described what it entails. He said it consists of electroshock therapy, nausea-inducing medication, while children are shown homoerotic media and putting children in vats of water. This is known as aversion therapy. Aversion therapy is a practice meant to 
form a negative association with something to, quote, correct it. Quote, it's a practice done that is abusive, Greider said, and if we can't see eye to eye that we shouldn't be electrocuting children, then let's have a fundamental disagreement about what makes basic human rights, unquote. Council member Rob Nichols, who is a pharmacist, agreed, quote, as a healthcare professional, I see that all of my colleagues in the medical profession and psychiatric profession and pediatric areas, they do not support conversion therapy, Nichols said. As a father and a Christian, I am coming at this with love. I will be judged when my days are over by my maker. But my Christian teaching tells me to come at everything with love, unquote. The topic of Christianity and religion came up multiple times during the meeting. Quote, it's not our place as humans to cast judgment, Council Member John Child said. This is only the purview of the Lord himself, and that's what I believe as a Christian. As Council Member Nia Wilder spoke about being the first openly LGBTQ plus council member, someone in the audience harshly whispered, Sinner, quote, leave it to some of your beliefs. I wouldn't be sitting here, Wilder said. Quote, the door I opened wouldn't be open because you don't believe that I deserve it based on who I am. I don't believe it's your job to judge anyone. I am normal. I am loved. I am blessed. I am great, and I am not intimidated, unquote. The comment about being normal came after multiple residents labeled heterosexuals as typical and normal. Quote, when a child is born, it's not hard to tell what they are. Resident Forrest Delavu said, I've never seen one that has homosexual written across the belly button. You're doing nothing for the normal kids or the ones that are non-transsexual, unquote. Multiple statements were made concerning transgender children. One resident said many of his friends thought conversion therapy ban was a ban to stop gender reassignment surgery, which they would have agreed with, he said. Other comments suggested many transgender people regret transitioning or that being transgender is a social contagion, according to resident Al Mannington. Resident Jenny Garcia disputed such statements, saying in reality the regret rate is 1%. This has been backed up by the National Library of Medicine. Quote, People speaking against transgender children never mentioned knowing any transgender people in their life, Garcia said. Quote, While the people who have are for this ordinance, unquote. The ordinance now must survive two more readings. Quote, We have a chance to say that bigotry, gay panic, transphobia, and homophobia are relics that belong in the dustbin of history, Greider said. For our next story, the headline is, Flirt's Indie Film Earns Cedar Valley Actress Top Honors at Film Festivals in U.S. and Europe. Melody Parker filed this one. Dateline Waterloo. Rebecca McCarthy has earned some serious acting brass, enough that she said she may need to add a shelf to her bookcase. The local theater veteran won five Best Actress Awards from independent film contests in the U.S. and Europe for her role as a strip club owner in a new comedy. The indie movie Flirts was shot on location at Flirts Gentlemen's Club in Waterloo. 
directed by award-winning Waterloo-based filmmaker Don Charnagle. Quote, I got the call. Hey, we want to have an awards party and present you with something. I was blown away. And it was super fun that the team earned awards, and some of the awards came with brass, trophies. When I got mine, they did a photo where I'm holding up a trophy in each hand, and a third hand is reaching around me, holding another trophy, said McCarthy, laughing. McCarthy won Best Actress Awards from Chicago Cinema Awards, Artist Choice Awards, Sweden Film Awards, Art Film Awards, and Actors Awards from Los Angeles. The movie also won Best Comedy Honors, presented by the Chicago Cinema, Artist Choice, New York International Film, Europe Film, Italy's Eight and a Half Film Awards, and Art Film Festivals. Chernigal received a nod as Best Director from the Artist Choice Festival. Screenplay and Editing was recognized by the World Indie Film Festival, and the movie earned honorable mentions from New York Movie and Eight and a Half Film Festivals. The ensemble cast was nominated for an award in the Hollywood Film Competition. Quote, I didn't realize this one would be so well received, Charnagal confessed. He's won a slew of awards for earlier films, but nothing on this scale. He has produced and directed several R-rated feature comedies made in the Cedar Valley, including Bros, On the Rocks, and Last Call. He also made a horror flick, Red, and the romantic comedy Love Struck Sick. Jarnagal signed an agreement with the West Hollywood distribution company Adler & Associates for the films. Flirts is the story of Rebecca, Becca Romero, McCarty, a young woman who is trying to make a go of the strip club she inherited from her grandfather. When a scandal occurs at the club, local politicians are determined to close down the business for good. Quote, I feel like the character of Becca is optimistic because she wants to keep her grandfather's legacy alive. The reality is, these types of establishments get backlash from communities. So that's stressful and she's concerned about the people who work there, said McCarty. Jarnagel wrote the script, as well as directing. Quote, you could say the script was reverse-engineered. I had the story and looked around for a place to film. We filmed during the day when Flirts was closed. A day here, a day there, he said. He hired the club's professional dancers for the dance scenes. The film is rated R for nudity and language. There is no violence and no sex scene. Jarnagel loves making movies in the Cedar Valley, particularly Waterloo. Quote, I think it's the perfect setting. It looks great in drone shots. You can find backgrounds and locations for just about any decade, said the Waterloo native. Quote, I truly believe in this town and its people. I absolutely love it here and think it's a wonderful place to produce films. I believe the actresses, actors, Producers, technical crew, and cinematographers we have right here are every bit as talented and look as good as what you would see in a major Hollywood film. McCarty, a theater and performance graduate from the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, is a familiar face to audiences at Waterloo and Cedar Falls Community Theaters. In her day job, she is Director of Development for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Cedar Valley. She also volunteers her time 
dressing up as a superhero character, and touring for Heroes for Hope, an organization that promotes childhood literacy. The Makokoda native also was recognized in 2022 for Courier Under 40 honors. McCarty appreciated the flirt's shooting schedule. Quote, I was usually on set about once a week, and Don left room for improvisation or for coming up with a better idea for the character. It was a relatable role for me because I'd been a retail manager for 16 years. McCarty has been cast as the lead in Charnigal's first PG-rated film, Huskies. She plays a junior high school basketball coach involved in a grudge match with a private school's team. Quote, it's a wholesome movie, a drama with comedic elements. There are a lot of kid actors in the movie, and Rebecca is endearing in the role. Originally, it was written for a male, and I switched it for Rebecca, Tarnagal said. The final scene will be filmed at the Cedar Valley Sportsplex. A film premiere is planned for November 3rd at Marcus Crossroads Cinema. Flirts can be viewed for free on TUBI, Tubby. Now under the heading of Government and Politics, Tax, Data Center Discussions, Get contentious at Waterloo Council meeting. Dateline is Waterloo. Monday's city council meeting began with a bang as a resident argued about proper decorum during the public comment period. Quote, it wasn't the only dispute of the night. Dwayne Eiders stepped up to the podium wearing an orange and camouflage baseball cap during public comment at the beginning of the meeting. Mayor Pro Tem Ray Foos asked Eiders to remove his hat, to which Eilers responded no. Mayor Quentin Hart was absent from the meeting to watch his son play a basketball game at East High. Quote, I have a right to dress any way I feel, Eilers said. I'm not bowing down to you by taking my hat off, unquote. A similar argument happened in 2018 with Eilers and his hat. After that dispute, Mayor Quentin Hart halted the council meeting to have then-police chief Dan Trelka escort Eilers out of the building. But Eilers had already left. Eilers eventually decided to remove his hat and got into what he really wanted to talk about, taxes. Later in the evening, there was a public hearing to discuss the fiscal year 2024 budget maximum property tax levy. The maximum tax levy for fiscal year 2024 is $42.26 million, which is an increase of $5.09 million, or 13.7%, over last year's tax askings. That would be a maximum property tax rate of $1,781 per $1,000 of taxable value, which is up about $2.26 per $1,000 over last year. While no one spoke during the actual hearing, Eilers gave his opinion during public comment, which is normally reserved for non-agenda items. Quote, you run the city right in the hole by taxing people to death, Eilers said. Quote, since this mayor, we've had increased taxes five times, and you went along with it like a bunch of sheep. You're doing a great job. You're robbing every citizen in the town, unquote. The proposed 13.7% jump is not the final budget amount. Publishing the maximum level is a step the state requires 
before the council approves the budget. The public hearing for that is on March 6th. One public hearing that did spur discussion and ultimately a recess was about a request from Weatherfield Realty Group, LLC, to construct a new 230-square-foot telecommunications facility located north of 2365 Northeast Drive. The building would have been for a private data center. Another public hearing directly after that was for the sale of the city-owned property to the group in the amount of $1 with a development agreement and minimum assessment agreement of $100,000. Community Planning and Development Director Noel Anderson said the assessed value would be maintained until December 31st of the year 2028. Council Member Dave Bozen stated at the meeting he didn't think this would create economic development. In a later interview with The Courier, he reiterated his reasoning. Quote, it's not bringing in jobs. It's not economic development, Bozen said. There's going to be little taxes coming in, and it goes into a tax increment financing district. There needs to be a return on that, and the return is creating jobs and creating a tax base, and this creates neither. Bozen joined John Childs and Jonathan Greider in voting against the resolution, which failed to pass 3-3. to With the Ward 4 seat vacant, there are currently only six members on the council. Childs and Greider were not available for comment. The failure to pass the resolution resulted in the other item being tabled. A new voting system utilized by the city allows the council members to vote on iPads with the results shown on the TV screens in the chambers. The system doesn't show who voted no, and the council has stopped doing an audible roll call. This caused another point of contention during the meeting. Resident Todd Obadal came up to the podium twice to voice his concern that the audience could not tell who voted for or against an agenda item. Quote, these citizens have a right to know, Obadal said. How fundamental can we get on this? Quote, Foose called for a motion to recess after an argument ensued with Obadal. The council remained in recess for about five minutes. Police Chief Joe Leibold motioned for Obadal to leave the chambers, and residents in the room asked Obadal to stop arguing. At the January 3rd council meeting, Obadal was removed from the meeting after getting into a heated argument with Mayor Hart about empty Ward 4 seat. The council was deciding whether to fill the vacancy through an appointment or through a vote in a special election. The council also voted on a resolution to allow fireworks to be shot off from noon to 11 p.m. on July 3rd for 4th of July celebrations. It passed 5 to 1, with council member Jonathan Greider voting against it, saying one day of fireworks was enough. In January, the council unanimously passed a new ordinance that allows fireworks to be set off on July 4th. However, the council can designate additional days of usage in a particular year if those dates are adopted between January 1st and March 1st. Previously, fireworks could be set off within the city on July 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Our next story is titled, School Books Hearing Gets Testy. 
Committee Hears from Parents with Concerns, written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines, a hearing Monday on Iowa School District's process for reviewing and removing school library books and materials some parents and community members deem obscene, devolved into testy exchanges between Democrats and Republicans. Iowa parents, many activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, told state lawmakers during a February 6th hearing that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for school books they find obscene and divisive. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions, and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican from Indianola, and chair of the Government Oversight Committee, said parents who had gone through the book review process with their schools were asked to speak before the committee Monday about their experience before hearing later from superintendents and school board presidents from the Carlisle, Carroll, Johnston, Urbandale, Waukee, and West Des Moines districts who deal with the review process. Quote, this is not a subcommittee on a bill legislating whether these books should be in schools, Bowden said in a statement. Quote, if it were, all members of the public on all sides of the issue would be welcome to come and share their thoughts on the legislation. This is a hearing meant to help us learn more about the book review process. The parents who are in support of these books in schools do not have any experience with the book review process to discuss before the committee, unquote. Republican lawmakers questioned school officials about their review processes. The Waukee School District pulled the book Gender Queer off its library shelves after parents complained that the book had exposed their students to inappropriate content. However, a 10-person reconsideration committee in Carlisle unanimously recommended keeping Gender Queer in the high school library. The committee said the book's content provides, quote, a perspective that is relevant to today's teens and has an educational and social economic component for students interested in or needing information on the topics in this book, unquote. Republican lawmakers, however, questioned the literacy and educational value of books like Gender Queer that contain sexually graphic images. Bowdoin asked school officials in Carlisle, which chose not to pull the book from the high school library shelves, whether a student would be allowed to wear a t-shirt with images from the book depicting sexual acts. While a student would not be able to wear such a shirt, school officials said just one passage or set of images is not sufficient for a book to be considered obscene. Under state law, a book must contain obscene material when taken as a whole and lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value, unquote. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. Quote, I don't see how a book could be removed using the standards you've discussed here, Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said. Quote, and so that's the concern I have, and something I think we need to take a hard look at. It seems to me 
there are probably mountains of books that could have literary value and connect to students without having some of graphic images like we see in Gender Queer and some of those other books, unquote. Representative Sean Begnisky, a Democrat from Des Moines, remarked, quote, there are graphic images in the, in the Bible if we put them in comic book form would not be appropriate on a t-shirt, unquote. And as a devout Catholic, I don't want the Bible banned from our public schools, Begnuski said. The remark elicited a sharp rebuke from Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, to which Bagnuski chuckled, quote, You can laugh all you like, but the hubris that's oozing, in my opinion, from your statement is speaking for itself, Kaufman said. Quote, Those of us that are here today are here as concerned parents. And to just make light of that and continue to grin at people that have serious concerns about the materials, I think speaks more about you than this committee, unquote. Earlier Monday, several parents and some students and educators spoke against the proposals in the special hearing held by Democrats. Rebecca Shorts, a junior at Carlisle High School, said that genderqueer provided an honest and open account by the author that has helped students in her school that are questioning their gender identity or want to better understand the fluid world of gender identity and the many different avenues and nuances of identifying as non-binary, unquote. In cases where school officials choose to retain the book, parents are afforded the option to request their child not be allowed to view or check out the material. And now, listeners, we just want to take a minute to remind you that you're hearing the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 22nd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Gilbertville, Rosemary Delagardel, 94 of Gilbertville, died Sunday, February 19, 2023, at her home surrounded by her loving family. She was born March 17, 1928, in Gilbertville, daughter of Frank and Ida DeMuth Metcalf. She was raised with four brothers who called her sis. Rosemary attended St. Mary High in Waterloo and graduated in 1945. She married Gerald C. Jerry Delagardel on June 4, 1947, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Gilbertville. She was employed at Rath's office as a telegraph operator until her marriage to Gerald. After marriage, she was most involved in her husband's business in the Gilbertville Milling Company. Rosemary was one of the corporation officers and open house hostess, starting their family blessed with ten children. Along with raising their family and their business, they were involved in many activities that went along with a big family, like branches on a tree. We grew in different directions, yet our roots remained as one. But we were always a special part of each other. Rosemary, along with Gerald, were mended heart volunteers. Meals on Wheels, 
a youth director for Catholic Order of Foresters, as well as a COF member, and many activities in the school and church. Rosemary was an avid golfer and loved traveling and making memories with Jerry. Along with many devoted ladies of the parish, she was a member of the Recycled Card Program for many years. Gerald and Rosemary shared 66 years of marriage until Gerald passed away in 2013. Services for Rosemary will be at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, February 24th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church with burial in St. Mary's Cemetery. Public visitation will be from 4 o'clock until 8 o'clock p.m. on Thursday at the church, where there will be a 4 p.m. rosary. Visitation also for one hour prior to services on Friday. Haggerty Wychoff Grarup Funeral Service on South Street is in charge of arrangements. Memorials may be directed to Cedar Valley Hospice or Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. Online condolences may be left at www.haggertywychoffgrarup.com. And next in Hudson, Della R. Wilson, 81 of Hudson, died on Thursday, February 16, 2023, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home. She was born July 20, 1941, in Waterloo, the daughter of Richard and Catherine Mingus Scarborough. Della graduated from West High School in 1960. She married Jerry Wilson on February 24, 1962, in the Hudson Community Church. She worked in the packaging department for Standard Golf for 29 years. Over the years, she enjoyed camping, working in her gardens with her flowers. She loved her family, especially spoiling her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Funeral services for Della will be at 10.30 Saturday, February 25, 2023, at Lock on 4th Street in Waterloo. Burial will be in the Hudson Cemetery in Hudson. Visitation will be from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. on Friday, February 24, 2023, at Lock on 4th Street, Waterloo. Memorials will be directed to the family. Lock Funeral Services on 4th is handling arrangements. You may send condolences to www.lockfuneralservices.com. Next. Darlene Mary Lehman Sherwood was born April 5, 1930, in Waterloo. She's the daughter of Chris and Hulda Stromer Lehman. She married William Bill Sherwood on December 1, 1950. They had six children. Darlene retired from the Wonder Bread thrift store. Darlene passed away on Friday, February 17, 2023 at LaPorte City Specialty Care at the age of 92. There will be no visitation or service at her request. There will be a private burial at Garden of Memories. Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories is handling arrangements. Next is Carolyn Jane Klubine, 81 years old, of Dunkerton, Iowa, and she died Sunday, February 12, 2023, at Mission Regional Medical Center, in Mission, Texas. Funeral services for Carolyn will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 25, 2023, at the First United Methodist Church in Dunkerton. 
with burial at Fairview Cemetery in Dunkerton. Visitation will be Friday, February 24th, 2023, at the White Funeral Home in Jessup, Iowa, from 4 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m. Visitation will also be for an hour before services Saturday at the church. Memorials will be directed to charities. Online condolences may be posted at www.white-mounthome.com. Carolyn was born December 21, 1941, at Dumont, Iowa, the daughter of Paul A. Miller and May L. Greiner Miller. She graduated from Dunkerton High School with the class of 1960. On May 29, 1960, she was united in marriage to Norman Neal Klubine at the First United Methodist Church in Dunkerton. Carolyn was active in her church, teaching Sunday school, and a member of the United Methodist Women. She most enjoyed being a laity leader at her church. She was a 4-H leader for 25 years, served on the Black Hawk County 4-H Fair Board and Youth Committee, and was a food and nutrition superintendent. She served as a county 4-H food and nutrition judge, served three terms on the Black Hawk County Extension Council, served on the Black Hawk County Planning and Zoning Commission, and Blackhawk County Children's Council, was co-chair of fundraising for the new Dunkerton Public Library and chair of the Dunkerton Historical and Tourism Association. She was also a member of the Dunkerton Garden Club, Red Hat Ladies, and Women's Club. White Funeral Home in Jessup, Iowa, is in charge of the arrangements. Next, in Waterloo, Douglas Eugene Purdy, 68, of Waterloo, Iowa, died on Friday, February 17, 2023, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo, of a cardiac arrest. Douglas was born on June 4, 1954, in Marion, Indiana, to Elwin and Velma Hare Purdy. He had earned his master's degree in Christian education from Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. He married Jean Cecile de Buenas, on February 22, 1979, at Grace United Methodist Church in Waterloo. Douglas had worked as a quality engineer for multiple manufacturing facilities prior to his retirement. He enjoyed puppets, genealogy, cleaning and maintaining family headstones, computers, board games, movies, and being a mall Santa. Doug cherished time spent with family and his cat, Marla. Funeral services for Doug will be at 11 o'clock a.m. on Friday, February 24th at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue in Waterloo, with burial in Waterloo Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation is 4 o'clock p.m. to 6 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, February 23rd at Lock at Tower Park, Waterloo, and for one hour prior to the service. Memorials may be directed to the family. Lock at Tower Park is in charge of arrangements, and their phone number is 319-233-3146. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Next, we have the listing of death notices. Timothy Tim Connor, 67, of Laporte City, died Saturday, February 18th at Mercy One, Des Moines. 
Arrangements are with Locke Funeral Services. Hurley Johnson, Jr., 88, of Waterloo, died Sunday, February 19th, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. Arrangements are with Locke on 4th. Jerry Deloy Lafferty, Sr., 81, of Waterloo, died Monday, February 20th, at Ravenwood Specialty Care. Arrangements are with Locke at Tower Park in Waterloo. Anne E. Ness died on Sunday, February 19th at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital. Arrangements for her are with Locke Funeral Services. And Loqueta Ward, 51 of Tama, passed away Monday, February 20th at her home. Arrangements are with Cruz Phillips Funeral Home in Tama, Toledo. Next, in Dumont, Marjorie Ann Hennig Campman, 94, died on February 19th at Franklin Country View Nursing Facility in Hampton, Iowa, just two days shy of the 40th anniversary of her husband's death. Marjorie was a longtime resident of Dumont, Iowa. Marge was born on October 31, 1928, at her parents' home in Ackley, Iowa, to Joseph and Helen Anderfer Hennig. Marge attended grade school at Sacred Heart Academy in Ackley and graduated from Ackley High School in 1946. In her young adult life, Marge worked at the Strand Theater in Ackley and the Ackley World Journal. Marge married Harvey A. Campman on February 4, 1951, in St. Mary's Catholic Church in Ackley. Marge and Harvey farmed south of Dumont, Iowa, and raised three daughters, Carol, Donna, and Eileen. In February 1980, Marge and Harvey moved from the farm into Dumont. After moving into town, Marge began working in the Dumont School cafeteria and continued to do so for 13 years. Marge continued to live in the same house in Dumont from 1980 until she had health issues in early 2022. The family thanks the Franklin County View Nursing Facility in Hampton for their loving care of Marge in her last months. Memorials can be sent to St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Hampton, Iowa, or Ackley Heritage Center in Ackley, Iowa, if desired. A massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 23rd, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Hampton, followed by burial in the Dumont Cemetery. A visitation will be held from 5 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m. Wednesday, February 22nd, at Council Woodley Funeral Home in Dumont, followed by a rosary service. Council Woodley Funeral Home is caring for Marge and her family. And in Cedar Falls, James Robert Stonewall, 69 of Cedar Falls, died at home on Saturday, February 18th. He was born in Marshalltown on October 27, 1953, to Robert and Donna Moyer Stonewall. Jim married Jan Harmon on November 25, 1978, in Eldora. He worked for FedEx and later beside his father on the family farm. There will be a memorial service for James at 11 o'clock on Saturday, February 25th, and visitation from 4 until 6 p.m., on Friday at Dahl Van Hoof Schoof Funeral Home of Cedar Falls. A full obituary and other information is available 
at www.dollfuneralhome.com. Now that's the last of the obituaries in today's paper. Let's turn now to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes to us from the New York Times and authored by Paul Krugman. Title is, Why Medicare and Social Security Are Sustainable. The GOP response to President Biden's truthful statement that some Republicans want to sunset Medicare and Social Security has been highly gratifying. In other words, the party has reacted with sheer panic, plus a startling lack of message discipline, with both Mike Pence and Nikki Haley saying that actually, yes, they do want to privatize or reform Social Security, which is code for gutting it. Now Republicans are talking about slashing woke programs like Medicaid and food stamps. It's going to be fun when the party realizes who depends on these programs and how popular Medicaid in particular is, even among its own voters. The press's response to Biden's remarks has, however, been less gratifying. I've seen numerous declarations from mainstream media that, of course, Medicare and Social Security can't be sustained in their present form, and not just in the opinion pages. There's been at least some revision to the early 2010s practice of including antisocial insurance editorializing in what are supposed to be straight news reports, with highly disputable claims about these programs' future presented as simple facts. So let me try to get the record straight. Yes, our major social programs are on a trajectory that will cause them to cost more in the future than they do today. But how we deal with that trajectory is a choice, and the solution need not involve benefit cuts. A good starting point on these issues is the Congressional Budget Office report on the long-term budget outlook, a report issued every year with the most recent report released in July. The numbers were updated this month, but the basic picture hasn't changed. The CBO does excellent work without a policy agenda and is an extremely useful resource. The current report offers a very clear depiction of both the budget challenges facing our major social insurance programs and the sources of those challenges. Here's my favorite figure showing projected changes in spending over the next 30 years. But the budget office is not necessarily always right. In fact, the ways in which it has proved wrong in the past are highly illuminating. To put this chart in context, there's a widespread narrative to the effect that Medicare and Social Security are unsustainable because they won't be able to handle the mass retirement of baby boomers. But as you can see right away, only about half the projected rise in spending is the result of population aging. The rest comes from the assumption, and that's all it is, an assumption, that medical costs will rise faster than the gross domestic product. Before I get there, a word about demography. You might think that the projected aging is all about baby boomers, but the baby boom is generally considered to have ended in 1964. So the last of us, yes, I'm one of them, will hit 65 in the year 2029. Just six years from now, most baby boomers are already there. So why does the CBO project continuing budget pressure from aging? 
because it assumes that life expectancy, specifically life expectancy at age 65, will keep rising. That has certainly been true in the past, but given America's mortality problems, I'm not sure that it's safe to assume this trend will continue at the past rates. Still, let's grant the aging bit. What about additional cost growth in health care? Well, historically, health spending has risen faster than the GDP. Largely, we think, because doctors can now treat many more things than in the past, and this effect has outpaced cost savings from improved technology. But excess cost growth has slowed considerably since around 2010, perhaps in part because of cost reduction aspects of the Affordable Care Act. In any case, the leveling off is unmistakable. Here's national health spending as a percent of GDP. This health care slowdown has, as it should, affected budget projections. Back during the early 2010s, the heyday of the very serious people who insisted that Medicare and Social Security were unsustainable, CBO projections assumed that health spending would grow at historical rates. This meant that under current policies, long-run projected spending was indeed enormous and obviously unsustainable. But that has changed a lot. I don't know if people still repeating the old slogans about the need for entitlement reform realize just how much projections of future spending have come down. But here's a comparison between projected Medicare spending as a percent of GDP from the 2009 long-term budget outlook and the most recent projection. A side note, the CBO used to do 75-year projections, but apparently realized at some point that these are of little value because nobody has any idea what the world will look like in 75 years. I used to joke that long before we got there, Skynet would have killed us all. But now we know better. Bing's chatbot will do us in. In any case, the projections now go only 30 years ahead. Anyway, CBO projections now show social insurance spending as a percentage of GDP, eventually rising by about five points, which is still a lot, but not unimaginably large. And here's the thing. Half of that is still the assumed rise in health care costs. And there are things we can do to control costs that don't involve cutting off Americans' benefit. Bear in mind both that U.S. health care is far more expensive than that of any other nation without delivering better results, and that since 2010, we've already done quite a lot to bend the curve. It's not all that hard to imagine that improving the incentives to focus on medically effective care could limit cost growth to well below what the CBO is projecting, even now. And if we can do that, the rise in entitlement spending over the next three decades might be more like 3% of GDP. That's not an inconceivable burden. America has the lowest taxes of any advanced nation. Given the political will, of course we could come up with 3% more of GDP in revenue. So, no, Social Security and Medicare aren't inherently unsustainable, doomed by demography. We can keep these programs, which are so deeply embedded in American society, if we want to. 
killing them would be a choice. The next editorial also comes from the New York Times, written by Kai Bird. Jimmy Carter's presidency was not what you think. The man was not what you think. He was tough. He was extremely intimidating. Jimmy Carter was probably the most intelligent, hardworking, and decent man to have occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century. When I was regularly interviewing him a few years ago, he was in his early 90s, yet was still rising with the dawn and getting to work early. I once saw him conduct a meeting at 7 a.m. at the Carter Center, where he spent 40 minutes pacing back and forth on stage, explaining the details of his program to wipe out guinea worm disease. He was relentless. Later that day, he gave me, his biographer, exactly 50 minutes to talk about his White House years. Those bright blue eyes bore into me with an alarming intensity, but he was clearly more interested in the guinea worms. Mr. Carter remains the most misunderstood president of the last century. A Southern liberal, he knew racism was the nation's original sin. He was a progressive on the issue of race, declaring in his first address as Georgia's governor in 1971 that, quote, the time for racial discrimination is over, unquote, to the extreme discomfort of many Americans, including his fellow Southerners. And yet, as someone who had grown up barefoot in the red soil of archery, a tiny hamlet in South Georgia, he was steeped in a culture that had known defeat and occupation. This made him a pragmatist. The gonzo journalist Hunter Thompson once described Mr. Carter as one of the meanest men he had ever met. Mr. Thompson meant ruthless and ambitious and determined to win power, first the Georgia governorship and then the presidency, a post-Watergate, post-Vietnam War era of disillusionment with the notion of American exceptionalism was the perfect window of opportunity for a man who ran his campaign largely on the issue of born-again religiosity and personal integrity. Quote, I'll never lie to you, he said repeatedly on the campaign trail, to which his longtime lawyer, Charlie Kerbo, quipped that he was going to, quote, lose the liar vote. Improbably, Mr. Carter won the White House in 1976. He decided to use power righteously, ignore politics, and do the right thing. He was, in fact, a fan of the establishment's favorite Protestant theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote, quote, It is the sad duty of politics to establish justice in a sinful world, unquote. Mr. Carter was a Niebuhrian Southern Baptist, a church of one, a true outlier. He, quote, thought politics was sinful, said his vice president, Walter Mondale. Quote, the worst thing you could say to Carter if you wanted him to do something was that it was politically the best thing to do, unquote. Mr. Carter routinely rejected astute advice from his wife, Rosalind, and others to postpone politically costly initiatives like the Panama Canal Treaties to his second term. His presidency is remembered simplistically as a failure, yet it was more consequential than most recall. He delivered the Camp David peace accords between Egypt and Israel, 
the SALT II Arms Control Agreement, normalization of diplomatic and trade relations with China, and immigration reform. He made the principle of human rights a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy, planting the seeds for the unraveling of the Cold War in Eastern Europe and Russia. He deregulated the airline industry, paving the way for middle-class Americans to fly for the first time in large numbers. And he regulated natural gas, laying the groundwork for our current energy independence. He worked to require seatbelts or airbags, which would go on to save 9,000 American lives each year. And now, friends, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 22nd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Just a reminder that you can listen to recordings of this reading and the other newspapers that we read around the state of Iowa on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <music> ¶¶